Hey everyone, welcome to the second week of the Intro GIS Fall 2020 podcast. I am Dr. Rebecca Shakespeare, and this week I will be reading from Chapter 4 of the Campbell and Shin 2011 Essentials of Geographic Information Systems. That text is published under Creative Commons, and as such, this podcast will be two. The only changes to the text are I have stopped to enumerate some of the activities so that they can be done as a podcast. With that, I will mention that this is a tricky chapter looking at data structures, and so you might want to pull up the textbook on your phone so that you can look at figures along the way, or take some time after you're done listening to go back and review the text so that you can see the images included in it. And without further ado, Chapter 4, Data Models for GIS. Chapter 4, Data Models for GIS. In order to visualize spatial phenomena, one must first determine how best to represent geographic space. Data models are sets of rules and or constructs used to describe and represent aspects of the real world in a computer. Two primary data models are available to complete this task, raster data models and vector data models. Section 4.1, raster data models. The objective of this section is to understand how raster data models are implemented in GIS applications. The raster data model is widely used in applications ranging far beyond geographic information systems. Most likely, you're already familiar with this data model if you have any experience with digital photographs. The ubiquitous JPEG, BMP, and TIFF file formats, among others, are based on the raster data model. Take a moment to view your favorite digital image. If you zoom deeply into the image, you'll notice that it is composed of an array of tiny square pixels, or picture elements. Each of these uniquely colored pixels, when viewed as a whole, combines to form a coherent image. Furthermore, all liquid crystal display computer monitors are based on raster technology, as they are composed of a set number of rows and columns of pixels. Notably, the foundation of this technology predates computers and digital cameras by nearly a century. The neo-impressionist artist Georges Seurat developed a painting technique referred to as pointillism in the 1880s, which similarly relies on a massing of small monochromatic dots of ink that combine to form a larger image. If you are as generous as the author, you may indeed think of your raster dataset creations as sublime works of art. The raster data model consists of rows and columns of equally sized pixels interconnected to form a planar surface. These pixels are used as building blocks for creating points, lines, areas, networks, and surfaces. Although pixels may be triangles, hexagons, or even octagons, square pixels represent the simplest geometric form with which to work. Accordingly, the vast majority of available raster GIS data are built on the square pixel. These squares are typically reformed into rectangles of various dimensions if the data model is transformed from one projector to another, for example, from state plane coordinates to universal transverse mercator coordinates. Because of the reliance on a uniform system of square pixels, the raster data model is referred to as a grid-based system. Typically, a single data value will be assigned to each grid locale. Each cell in a raster carries a single value, which represents the characteristic of the spatial phenomenon at the location denoted by its row and column. 
The data type for that cell can be either integer or floating point. Alternatively, the raster graphic can reference a database management system wherein open-ended attribute values can be used to associate multiple values to each pixel. The advance of computer technology has made this second methodology increasingly feasible as large data sets are no longer constrained by computer storage issues as they were previously. The raster model will average all values within a given pixel to yield a single value. Therefore, the more area covered per pixel, the less accurate the associated data values. The area covered by each pixel determines the spatial resolution of the raster model from which it is derived. Specifically, resolution is determined by measuring one side of the square pixel. A raster model with pixels represented by representing 10 meters by 10 meters, or 100 square meters, in the real world would be said to have a spatial resolution of 10 meters. A raster model with pixels measuring one kilometer by one kilometer, that is one square kilometer, in the real world would be said to have a spatial resolution of one kilometer, and so forth. Care must be taken when determining the resolution of a raster because using an overly coarse pixel resolution will cause a loss of information, whereas using overly fine pixel resolution will result in significant increases in file size and computer processing requirements during display and or analysis. An effective pixel resolution will take both the map scale and the minimum mapping unit of the other GIS data into consideration. In the case of raster graphics with coarse spatial resolution, the data values associated with specific locations are not necessarily explicit in the raster data model. For example, if the location of telephone poles were mapped on a coarse raster graphic, it would be clear that the entire cell would not be filled by the pole. Rather, the pole would be assumed to be located somewhere within that cell, typically at the center. Imagery employing the raster data model must exhibit several properties. First, each pixel must hold at least one value, even if that data value is zero. Furthermore, if no data are present for a given pixel, a data placeholder must be assigned to this grid cell. Often, an arbitrary, readily identifiable value, like negative 9,999, will be assigned to pixels for which there is no data value. Second, a cell can hold any alphanumeric index that represents an attribute. In the case of quantitative data sets, attribute assignation is fairly straightforward. For example, if a raster image denotes elevation, the data values for each pixel would be some indication of elevation, usually in feet or meters. In the case of qualitative data sets, data values are indices that necessarily refer to some predetermined translational rule. In the case of land use or land cover raster graphic, the following rule may be applied. 1 equals grassland, 2 equals agricultural, 3 equals disturbed, and so forth. The third property of the raster data model is that points and lines move to the center of the cell. As one might expect, if a one kilometer resolution raster image contains a river or a stream, the location of the actual waterway within the river pixel will be unclear. Therefore, there is a general assumption that all zero dimensional point and one dimensional line features will be located toward the center of the cell. As a corollary, 
The minimum width for any line feature must necessarily be one cell, regardless of, regardless of the actual width of the feature. If it is not, the feature will not be represented in the image and will therefore be assumed to be absent. Several methods exist for encoding raster data from scratch. Three of these models are as follows. One, cell-by-cell -cell raster encoding. This minimally invasive method encodes raster by creating records for each cell by row and by column. This method could be thought of as a large spreadsheet wherein each cell of the spreadsheet represents a pixel in the raster image. This method is also referred to as exhaustive enumeration. Two, run length raster encoding. This method encodes all cell values in runs of similarly valued pixels and can result in a highly compressed image file. The run length encoding method is useful in situations where large groups of neighboring pixels have similar values. For example, discrete data sets such as land use, land cover, or habitat suitability, and is less useful where neighboring pixel values may vary widely. For example, continuous data sets such as elevation or sea surface temperatures. Number three, quad tree raster encoding. This method divides the raster into a hierarchy of quadrants that are subdivided based on similarly valued pixels. The division of the raster stops when a quadrant is made entirely from cells of the same value. A quadrant that cannot be subdivided is called a leaf node. Advantages and disadvantages of the raster model. The use of a raster data model confers many advantages. First, the technology required to create raster graphics is inexpensive and ubiquitous. Nearly everyone currently owns some sort of raster image generator, namely a digital camera, and few cellular phones are sold today that don't include such functionality. Similarly, a plethora of satellites are constantly beaming up-to-the-minute raster graphics to scientific facilities around the globe. These graphics are often posted online for private and or public use, occasionally at no cost to the user. Additional advantages of raster graphics are the relative simplicity of the underlying data structure. Each grid location represented in the raster image correlates to a single value or series of value if attributes tables are included. This simple data structure may also help explain why it is relatively easy to perform overlay analyses on raster data. This simplicity also lends itself to easy interpretation and maintenance of the graphics relative to its vector counterpart. Despite the advantages, there are also several disadvantages to using the raster data model. The first disadvantage is that raster files are typically very large particularly in the case of raster images built from cell-by-cell -cell encoding methodology, the sheer number of values stored for a given data set result in potentially enormous files. Any raster file that covers a large area and has somewhat finely resolved pixels will quickly reach hundreds of megabytes in size or more. These large files are only getting larger as the quantity and quality of raster datasets continues to keep pace with the quantity and quality of computer resources and raster data collectors, for example, digital cameras and satellites. A second disadvantage of the raster model is that the output images are less pretty than their vector counterparts. This is particularly noticeable when raster images are enlarged or zoomed. 
Depending on how far one zooms into a raster image, the details and coherence of that image will quickly be lost amid the pixelated sea of seemingly random colored grid cells. The geometric transformations that arise during map reprojection efforts can also cause problems for raster graphics and represent a third disadvantage to using the raster model. As described in chapter two, changing map projections will alter the size and shape of the original input layer and frequently result in the loss or addition of pixels. These alterations will result in the perfect square pixels of the input layer taking on some alternate rhomboidal dimensions. However, the problem is larger than a single reformation for the square pixel. Indeed, the reprojection of a raster image dataset from one projection to another brings change to pixel values that may, in turn, significantly alter the output information. The final disadvantage of using the raster data model is that it is not suitable for some types of spatial analyses. For example, difficulties arise when attempting to overlay and analyze multiple raster graphics produced at differing scales and pixel resolutions. Combining information from a raster image with 10 meter spatial resolution with a raster image with one kilometer spatial resolution will most likely produce nonsensical output information as the scales of analysis are too far disparate to result in meaningful and or interoperable conclusions. In addition, some network and spatial analyses, for example, determining directionality or geocoding can be problematic to perform on raster data. The key takeaways from this section are, raster data are derived from a grid-based system of contiguous cells containing specific attribute information. The spatial resolution of a raster data set represents a measure of the accuracy or detail of the displayed information. The raster data model is widely used by non-GIS technologies, such as digital cameras and pictures, and LCD monitors. Care should be taken to determine whether the raster or vector data model is best suited for your data and or analytical needs. Now's a great time to stop and do one of the exercises from the textbook to really focus in on the concepts of raster data and also spatial resolution. Pull up a digital photo that you've taken recently. Take a minute and examine what the photo is of and about how big the objects in the photo are. For example, if you have a picture of a flower, you might estimate that that flower is two or three inches in diameter. I'll give you just a second to pull up that picture and then start thinking about it. Now that you sort of have a mental estimate, or if you don't, you could pause and get your mental estimate of that image, then start zooming in and zoom in so far until you start to see the pixels or the squares that are actually making up that image. It might be a little bit tricky, but see if you can hone in on just one of those pixels and estimate how big one of the sides of it is or identify what its spatial resolution is. You might wanna zoom in and out several times to see if you can estimate about how big each pixel is 
given the estimation of actual space that you just made about the photograph. Give you another minute or so to wrap up this exercise, and then we'll move on to chapter 4.2 on vectors. Section 4.2, Vector Data Models. The objective of this section is to understand how vector data models are implemented in GIS applications. In contrast to the raster data model is the vector data model. In this model, space is not quantized into discrete grid cells like the raster model. Vector data models use points and their associated X and Y coordinate pairs to represent the vertices of spatial features, much as if they were being drawn on a map by hand. The data attributes of these features are then stored in a separate database management system. The spatial information and attribute information for these models are linked via a simple identification number that is given to each feature in a map. Three fundamental vector types exist in geographic information systems, points, lines, and polygons. Points are zero-dimensional objects that contain only a single coordinate pair. Points are typically used to model singular, discrete features, such as buildings, wells, power poles, sample locations, and so forth. Points have only the property of location. Other types of point features include the node and the vertex. Specifically, a point is a standalone feature, while a node is a topological junction representing a common XY coordinate pair between intersecting lines or polygons. Vertices are defined as each bend along a line or a polygon feature that is not the intersection of lines or polygons. Points can be spatially linked to form more complex features. Lines, for example, are one-dimensional features composed of multiple explicitly connected points. Lines are used to represent linear features such as roads, streams, faults, boundaries, and so forth. Lines have the property of length. Lines that directly connect two nodes are sometimes referred to as chains, edges, segments, or arcs. Polygons are two-dimensional features created by multiple lines that loop back to create a closed feature. In the case of polygons, the first coordinate pair, a point, on the line segment is the same as the last coordinate pair on the last line segment. Polygons are used to represent features such as city boundaries, geologic formations, lakes, soil associations, vegetation communities, and so forth. Polygons have the properties of area and perimeter. Polygons are also called areas. Vector data models structures. Vector data models can be structured in many different ways. We will examine two of the more common data structures here. The simplest data structure is called the spaghetti data model. In the spaghetti model, each point, line, and or polygon feature is represented as a string of XY coordinate pairs, or a single XY coordinate pair in the case of a vector image with a single point. There's no inherent structure in the spaghetti model. One could envision each line in this model to be a single strand of spaghetti that is formed into complex shapes by the addition of more and more strands of spaghetti. It is notable that in this model, any polygons that lie adjacent to each other 
must be made up of their own lines or their own strands of spaghetti. In other words, each polygon must be uniquely defined by its own set of XY coordinate pairs, even if the adjacent polygons share the exact same boundary information. This creates some redundancies within the data model and therefore reduces efficiency. Despite the location designations associated with each line or strand of spaghetti, spatial relationships are not explicitly encoded within the spaghetti model. Rather, they're implied by their location. This results in a lack of topological information, which is problematic if the user attempts to make measurements or analysis. The computational requirements, therefore, are very steep if any advanced analytical techniques are employed on vector files structured thusly. Nevertheless, the simple structure of the spaghetti data model allows for efficient reproduction of maps and graphics, as this topological information is unnecessary for plotting and printing. In contrast to the spaghetti data model, the topological data model is characterized by the inclusion of topological information within the dataset, as the name implies. Topology is the set of rules that model the relationships between neighboring points, lines, and polygons, and determines how they share geometry. For example, consider two adjacent polygons. In the spaghetti model, the shared boundary of two neighboring polygons is defined as two separate, identical lines. The inclusion of topology in the data model allows for a single line to represent this shared boundary with an explicit reference to denote which side of the line belongs to which polygon. Topology is also concerned with preserving spatial properties when the forms are bent, stretched, or placed under similar geometric transformations, which allow for more efficient projection and reprojection of map files. Three basic topological precepts are necessary to understand the topological data model are outlined here. First, connectivity describes the arc node topology of the feature dataset. As discussed previously, nodes are more than simple points. In the topological data model, nodes are the intersection points where two or more arcs meet. In the case of arc node topology, Arcs have both a from node, a starting node, indicating where the arc begins, and a to node, i.e. an ending node, indicating where the arc ends. In addition, between each node pair is a line segment, sometimes called a link, which has its own identification number and references both its from node and to node. You can take a look at figure 4.10 in the textbook, and you'll see how arcs 1, 2, and 3 all intersect because they share node 11. Therefore, the computer can determine that it is possible to move along arc 1 and turn on to arc 3. Well, it is not possible to move from arc 1 to arc 5, as they do not share a common node. The second basic topological precept is area definition. Area definition states that an arc that connects to surround an area defines a polygon, also called polygon arc topology. In the case of polygon arc topology, arcs are used to construct polygons, and each arc is stored only once. This results in a reduction of the amount of data stored and ensures that adjacent polygon boundaries do not overlap. In figure 4.11, polygon arc topology in the textbook, the polygon arc topology makes it clear that polygon F 
is made up of arcs 8, 9, and 10. Contiguity, the third topological precept, is based on the concept that polygons that share a boundary are deemed adjacent. Specifically, polygon topology requires that all arcs in a polygon have a direction a from node and a to node, which allows adjacency information to be determined. Polygons that share an arc are deemed adjacent or contiguous, and therefore the left and right side of each arc can be defined. This left and right polygon information is stored explicitly within the attribute information of the topological data model. The universe polygon is an essential component of polygon topology that represents the external area located outside of the study area. Figure 4.12, Polygon Topology in the textbook, shows that arc 6 is bound on the left by polygon B and to the right by polygon C. Polygon A, the universe polygon, is to the left of arcs 1, 2, and 3. Topology allows the computer to rapidly determine and analyze the spatial relationships of all its included features. In addition, topological information is important because it allows for efficient error detection within the vector dataset. In the case of polygon features, open or unclosed polygons, which occur when an arc does not completely loop back upon itself, and unlabeled polygons, which occur when an area does not contain any attribute information, violate polygon arc topology rules. Another topological error found with polygon features is the sliver. Slivers occur when the shared boundary of two polygons do not meet exactly. In the case of line features, topological errors occur when two lines do not meet perfectly at a node. This error is called an undershoot when the lines do not extend far enough to meet each other, and an overshoot when a line extends beyond the feature it should connect to. The result of overshoots and undershoots is a dangling node at the end of a line. Dangling nodes aren't always an error, however, as they occur in the case of dead-end streets on a road map. Many types of spatial analysis require the degree of organization offered by topologically explicit data models. In particular, network analysis, for example, finding the best route from one location to another, and measurement, for example, finding the length of a river segment, relies heavily on the concept of to and from nodes and uses this information, along with attribute information, to calculate distances, shortest routes, quickest routes, and so forth. Topology also allows for sophisticated neighborhood analysis, such as determining adjacency, clustering, nearest neighbors, and so forth. Now that the basics of the concepts of topology have been outlined, we can begin to better understand the topological data model. In this model, the node acts as more than just a simple point along a line or polygon. The node represents the point of intersection for two or more arcs. Arcs may or may not be looped into polygons. Regardless, all nodes, arcs, and polygons are individually numbered. This allows for quick and easy reference within the data model. Advantages and disadvantages of the vector model. In comparison with the raster data model, vector data models tend to be better representations of reality, 
due to the accuracy and precision of points, lines, and polygons over the regularly spaced grid cells of a raster model. This results in vector data tending to be more aesthetically pleasing than raster data. Vector data also provides an increased ability to alter the scale of observation and analysis, as each coordinate pair associated with a point, line, and polygon represents an infinitesimally exact location, albeit limited by the number of significant digits and or data acquisition methodologies, zooming deep into a vector image does not change the view of a vector graphic in the way that it does in a raster graphic. Vector data tends to be more compact in data structure, so file sizes are typically much smaller than their raster counterparts. Although the ability of modern computers has minimized the importance of maintaining small file sizes, vector data often requires a fraction of the computer storage when compared to raster data. The final advantage of vector data is that topology is inherent in the vector model. This topological information results in simplified spatial analysis when using a vector model. Spatial analysis like error detection, network analysis, proximity analysis, and spatial transformation. Alternatively, there are two primary disadvantages to the vector data model. First, the data structure tends to be more complex than the simple raster data model as the location of each vertex must be stored explicitly in the model, there are no shortcuts for storing data like there are for raster models, for example, the run length and quad tree encoding methodologies. Second, the implementation of spatial analysis can also be relatively complicated due to minor differences in accuracy and precision between input data sets. Similarly, the algorithms for manipulating and analyzing vector data are complex and can lead to intensive processing requirements, particularly when dealing with large data sets. The key takeaways from this section are vector data utilizes points, lines, and polygons to represent the spatial features in a map. Topology is an informative geospatial property that describes the connectivity, area definition, and contiguity of interrelated points, lines, and polygons. Vector data may or may not be topologically explicit, depending on the file's data structure. And finally, care should be taken to determine whether the raster or vector data model is best suited for your data and or analytical needs. Now that you've heard a lot about vector data and vector data structure, this is a good time to stop and do a couple of short mental exercises thinking through exactly what you know now about vector data. The first exercise is to identify what vector type best represents specific features. Remember that vector types are points, lines, and polygons. What would be the vector type that you would use for state boundaries? How about telephone poles? What vector type would work well for buildings? What vector type might work really well for cities? How about what vector would you use for stream networks? What about mountain peaks? 
What vector type would work for soil types? And finally, what vector type would you use for flight tracks? Which of these features can be represented by multiple vector types? And what conditions might lead you to choose one vector type over another? The case that I like to think of for these choosing between vector types is different types of analyses you might do with a road. So if you wanted to look at roads across a whole city to see what would be a path that you could take along roads to get from one point in the city to another point in the city, you might want to use lines to represent those roads. However, if you were trying to identify areas in a city where there was not enough space for a sidewalk alongside a road, you might want to have the road actually represented as a polygon, because in that case, it matters that there are two sides of a road, not that a road is infinitesimally narrow, as it would be if it were represented with a line. I probably wouldn't represent a road as a point, so this example only goes so far, but you can think about how things like telephone poles could be represented as a point or as a polygon, how cities on a world map might be a point, but if you zoom in really close, they might actually be the outline of a city, so a polygon. One of the reasons we spend so much time learning about data structures is because we really do make very big choices about which data structure we use and how to represent the world that we're asking questions about. So think about when you would want to use raster versus vector and when you would use a point or a line or a polygon to represent a particular, a particular object or feature. As a GIS analyst and as a cartographer, you make a lot of decisions about exactly how you're going to operationalize the real world into raster and vector data. So we cover these early in the semester so that you understand the choices and trade-offs that you can make when representing your own problems or making your own maps. So now we'll go into section 4.3, satellite imagery and aerial photography. We won't be going into a lot of depth on these topics in this class. However, I think it is really important to give this section a listen or take a look at it in your textbook later to get a sense of how images or photographs taken from above the surface of the earth, of the surface of the earth, integrate and are used within geographic information systems. Again, you don't need to focus on the details so much as thinking about how these might apply or appear on a map. Chapter 4.3, Satellite Imagery and Aerial Photography. The objective of this section is to understand how satellite imagery and aerial photography are implemented in GIS applications. A wide variety of satellite imagery and aerial photography is available for use in geographic information systems. Although these products are basically raster graphics, they are substantively different in their usage within a GIS. 
satellite imagery and aerial photography provide important contextual information for a GIS and are often used to conduct heads-up digitizing, whereby features from the image are converted into vector datasets. Satellite imagery Remotely sensed satellite imagery is becoming increasingly common as satellites equipped with technologically advanced sensors are continually being sent into space by public agencies and private companies around the globe. Satellites are used for applications such as military and civilian Earth observation, communication, navigation, weather, research, and more. Currently, more than 3,000 satellites have been sent to space, with over 2,500 of them originating from Russia and the United States. These satellites maintain different altitudes, inclinations, eccentricities, synchronies, and orbital centers, allowing them to image a wide variety of surface features and processes. Satellites can be active or passive. Active satellites make use of remote sensors that detect reflected responses from objects that are irradiated from artificially generated energy sources. For example, active sensors, such as radars, emit radio waves, laser sensors emit light waves, and sonar sensors emit sound waves. In all cases, the sensor emits a signal and then calculates the time it takes for the returned signal bounce back from some remote feature. Knowing the speed of the emitted signal, the time delay from the original emission to the return can be used to calculate the distance to the feature. Passive satellites, alternatively, make use of sensors that detect the reflected or emitted electromagnetic radiation from natural sources. This natural source is typically the energy from the sun, but other sources can be imaged as well, such as magnetism and geothermal activity. Using an example we've all experienced, taking a picture with a flash-enabled camera would be active remote sensing, while using a camera without a flash, relying on ambient light to illuminate the scene, would be passive remote sensing. The quality and quantity of satellite imagery is largely determined by their resolution. There are four types of resolution that characterize any particular remote sensor. The spatial resolution of a satellite image, as described previously in the raster data model section, is a direct representation of the ground coverage for each pixel shown in the image. If a satellite produces imagery with a 10-meter resolution, the corresponding ground coverage of these pixels is 10 meters by 10 meters, or 100 square meters on the ground. Spatial resolution is determined by the sensor's instantaneous field of, field of view, or IFOV. The IFOV is essentially the ground area through which the sensor is receiving the electromagnetic radiation signal and is determined by height and angle of the imaging platform. Spectral resolution denotes the ability of a sensor to resolve wavelength intervals, also called bands, within the electromagnetic spectrum. The spectral resolution is determined by the interval size of the wavelengths and the number of intervals being scanned. Multispectral and hyperspectral sensors are those sensors that can resolve a multitude of wavelengths intervals within the spectrum. For example, 
The ICHNOS satellite resolves images for bands at the blue, green, red, and near-infrared wavelength intervals on its 4-meter multispectral sensor. Temporal resolution is the amount of time between each image collection period and is determined by the repeat cycle of the satellite's orbit. Temporal resolution can be thought of as true nadir or off nadir. Areas considered true nadir are located directly beneath the sensor, while off nadir areas are those that are imaged obliquely. In the case of the ICHNOS satellite, the temporal resolution is 3 to 5 days for off nadir imaging and 144 days for true nadir imaging. The fourth and final type of resolution, radiometric resolution, refers to the sensitivity of the sensor to variations in brightness and specifically denotes the number of grayscale levels that can be imaged by the sensor. Typically, available radiometric values for a sensor are 8-bit, yielding values that range from 0 to 255 as 256 unique values or as 2 to the 8th values, 11-bit, 0 to 2047, 12-bit, 0 to 4095, or 16-bit, 0 to 63535. Landsat 7, for example, maintains 8-bit resolution for its bands and can therefore record values for each pixel that range from 0 to 255. Because of the technical constraints associated with satellite remote sensing systems, there is a trade-off between these different types of resolution. Improving one type of resolution often necessitates a reduction in one of the other types of resolution. For example, an increase in spatial resolution is typically associated with a decrease in spectral resolution and vice versa. Similarly, geostationary satellites, those that circle the Earth proximal to the equator once each day, yield high temporal resolution but low spatial resolution, while sun-synchronous satellites, those that synchronize a near-polar orbit of the sensor with the sun's illumination, yield low temporal resolution while providing high spatial resolution. Although technological advances can generally improve the various resolutions of an image, care must always be taken to ensure that imagery you have chosen is adequate to represent or model the geospatial features that are most important to your study. Aerial Photography Aerial photography, like satellite imagery, represents a vast source of information for use in any GIS. Platforms for the hardware used to take aerial photographs include airplanes, helicopters, balloons, rockets, and so forth. While aerial photography connotes images taken on the visible spectrum, sensors to measure bands within the non-visible spectrum, for example, ultraviolet, infrared, and near-infrared, can also be fixed to aerial sources. Similarly, Aerial photography can be passive or active and can be taken from vertical or oblique angles. Care must be taken with aerial photographs as the sensors used to take the images are similar to cameras in their use of lenses. 
these lenses add a curvature to the images, which becomes more pronounced as one moves away from the center of the photo. Another source of potential error in an aerial photograph is relief displacement. This error arises from the three-dimensional aspect of terrain features and is seen as apparent leaning away of vertical objects from the center point of an aerial photograph. To imagine this type of error, consider that a smokestack would look like a donut if the viewing camera was directly above the feature. However, if this same smokestack was observed near the edge of the camera's view, one would observe the side of the smokestack. This error is frequently seen with trees and multi-story buildings and worsens with increasingly taller features. Orthophotos are vertical photographs that have been geometrically corrected to remove the curvature and terrain-induced error from images. The most common orthophoto product is the digital ortho quarter quadrangle, or DOQQ. DOQQs are available through the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS, who began producing these images from their library of 1 to 40,000th scale National Aerial Photography Program photos. These images can be obtained in either grayscale or color with 1 meter spatial resolution and 8-bit radiometric resolution. As the name suggests, these images cover a quarter of a USGS 7.5-minute quadrangle, which equals approximately 25-square-mile area. Included with these photos is an additional 50 to 300-meter edge around the photo that allows users to mosaic many DOQQs into a single continuous image. These DOQQs are ideal for use in a GIS as background display information for data editing and for heads-up digitizing. The key takeaways from this section are that satellite imagery is a common tool for GIS mapping applications as this data becomes increasingly available due to ongoing technological advances. Satellite imagery can be passive or active. The four types of resolution associated with satellite imagery are spatial, spectral, temporal, and radiometric. Vertical and oblique aerial photographs provide valuable baseline information for GIS applications.